welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. All right, Trevor, you're in town here. You're in Colorado for about a week and a half. I happen to know that uh, you went to a bicycle race on Sunday. How did that bicycle race go for you? I was fighting a bit of a plague, so not my best. Not your best. That's okay, though, because you can still use that race and that race result, even though it was not a particularly good one, uh, to get a better rate on life insurance from Health IQ. All you got to do is head to healthiq.com slash velonews, and then you can upload your race results from USA Cycling. You can upload your Strava, as we said earlier in the show, and you can get a better rate on your life insurance because you, Trevor, despite the fact that you were racing with a plague on Sunday, are a fit individual. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fritz. Uh, well, we have a lot of people actually around the table today. Trevor, Trevor, you're always here. Trevor's here again. Coach Trevor Connor. I'm oh, sorry. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> nope. Trevor's back. Coach Trevor is back. We also have uh, Velonews Managing Editor Chris Case here and two special guests, uh, returning alumni of the podcast, friend of the podcast, Frank Overton, a coach for 15 years, current head of FastCat Coaching. Welcome back, Frank. You. And Sepp Koos, a pro cyclist with Rally Pro Cycling, top 10 on the Mountain Baldy stage at Tour California this year, and recently sixth at the Colorado Classic. Welcome, Sepp. Thanks for having me. And keep an eye on the magazine because in our January issue, where we have an article where Sepp is going to destroy Chris and I a few times. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> much looking long. forward to that one. Uh, the topic of conversation today, and the reason why we have so many people in the room, is dealing with contradictory training advice. And I think anybody who has been riding a bike for any period of time has, has been through this. We have certainly, we've had coaches in this very room that have offered contradictory training advice and argued about it. Uh, that is sort of the nature of the beast uh, in, in a lot of these things because the science is always evolving. Our understanding is always evolving. And frankly, there's just, there's controversy sometimes. Uh, so Trevor, today's topic was motivated by a listener question. What was that question to us? Yeah, and this was a, a great question. So let's start by reading it. This listener said, I don't know if it's possible to address, but one of the things I get confounded by is how to handle contradictory advice or data. While there's plenty of agreement between different coaches and nutritionists out there, I feel like there's also quite a bit of contradictory beliefs and advice. And that question came to us from Nicholas Hack at California State University. I actually loved this question because this has been one of our philosophies at Fast Talk. The one thing when Kelly and I started this out, we said the one thing we don't want this to be is just me sitting here telling you everything I say is right. That's why we try to bring in a lot of guests. That's why every episode we put in excerpts of other people offering their opinion. I will tell you every time we have somebody say something that contradicts what I was saying in the podcast, I actually make sure to put that in because you do get different opinions. And Frank can remember this. I mean, one of my favorite things in coaching science right now is this whole sweet spot versus polarized training because you read the philosophy behind them. They're fundamentally opposite, yet I've seen both be incredibly successful. <laughs> and I once took it on a long time ago with Frank in an article thinking at the end of this article, I'm going to have a clear answer. And at the end of the article, I'm like, I am more confused than I was before. <laughs> so I think it's a fantastic question. 
why there is so much contradictory advice? I think there's a lot of conflicting advice in cycling because cyclists want to help other cyclists. So they're always willing to give you advice. And that's like the fundamentals of a group ride or mentors or teammates and now coaches and directors. And there's also more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. (laughs) You can reach your goal with two different paths. So you can get two different advices and still hit your goal. So there's a lot of right ways to give advice. And I think as a, as a cyclist, if you're talking about contradictory advice, you have to look at who's giving it to you or if you're actually asking for it. (laughs) So that puts the advice into context. If you're asking for it, you can research who you're asking. A great example, if you're on like a pro team and you get advice from your director about your bike, about like fixing it, there's that piece of advice. And then you could get advice from the actual mechanic (laughs) on what to do. And you, you just look at their credentials, director, mechanic, mechanic has expertise, director has expertise in something he's not elsewhere. Yeah. (laughs) He has expertise elsewhere. (laughs) So who are you going to believe? Go with the mechanic, right? And same way with uh, a teammate, you know, versus a director or a, or a coach. You know, teammates oftentimes have a special perspective on you, your riding buddies, um, versus a coach or a director who may not know that you broke up with your girlfriend, you know, a week ago, or know that you suck in cornering and <laughs> and need to work on that. Whereas your teammate, he's on your wheel and he sees it, he's scared to death. So, yeah, I think, you know, credentials... Um, education. Is this person giving you advice? Do they have a history of being right or a history of being wrong? Um, That's just like maybe some testimonials. But yeah, I mean, just look at their credentials. In that same vein, I wonder if you could speak to how marketing plays a role in all of this. Yeah. Marketing of like yourself or of a business? Uh, A business pitching a particular method or product versus another that might have us completely different take on what that would do yeah you have to kind of read between the lines when you get advice and look at their motives of why they're giving you advice you know if you get nutritional advice from someone selling nutrition reading between the lines they might be trying to sell you their product same way with coaches you know they may try to coach you or have you pay them to tell you what to do (laughs) or or things like that like whereas a teammate Maybe they're more um, objective, uh, more altruistic, and that they don't have anything to gain from giving you the advice, and therefore it's more pure. However, you know they may not even have expertise mm-hmm. in that topic. They just generally, genuinely want to help you. I have a question for Sep, actually. So we were talking before we turned the mics on here, and you mentioned that you're self-coached, which I, I think is actually pretty fascinating for, for a guy at your level in particular. I wonder where you get your advice from these days uh, and sort of where it comes from and where your background, where your background lies and then sort of why you feel confident with, with that particular decision to sort of like lead yourself basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, kind of going off of what uh, Frank was saying, you know, with writers giving advice, I think I can draw a lot from my teammates. You know, Rally doesn't have a collective team coach per se. So, you know, I think we get a lot of, or me personally, you know, get a lot of different advice from, you know, say guys like Rob Britton, who's super experienced or Danny Pate, who's seen a lot of different scenarios. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of different riders that give different advice. And yeah, from the inside of my team, 
pretty much all of us train uh, very differently. So Rob, for example, is doing six hours, motor pacing, climbs before and after. And then for a guy like me, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be doing that. I mean, I'm only <laughs> 22, you know, I, I can't handle that, uh, you know, sort of workload. So for guys like Rob and I, we kind of have this back and forth, like, oh, I, for example, for me, it's like, oh, I'll ride like easy all day and then just do the intervals that I feel I need in my lower zones or whatever. And then whereas Rob will just be on the pedals all day and you know sometimes it works out to a similar similar result and sometimes it doesn't so do you ever take what you're doing and then and then sort of like bounce it off of people for example i mean do you, do you ever go to rob and say hey what do you think about what i'm doing or is it pretty much you know you're, you're sort of analyzing just yourself yeah i think i think i keep most of it to myself i mean if i'm really training i prefer to do it totally solo mm-hmm. um i think that's where it, it's kind of funny in our training camps because everybody's has a different agenda, training agenda. So yeah, I definitely bounce ideas off, but you know, I have a pretty good idea of what, what I need to prepare for a race, which is usually more, more intensity, lower volume, Mm. kind of similar to, I wouldn't say like a mountain bike style training, but definitely emphasis on intensity over just smashing myself for six hours, which yeah, doesn't work for you. doesn't work for me, no. <laughs> You've had coaches in the past though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so you come from a cross-country skiing background, yeah. mountain biking background. Uh, I'm assuming you've, you've had coaches on the bike as well. You must take things from those experiences, right? I mean, yeah, they, absolutely. You I learn things from those people, learn yeah. things from those people. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, I think a lot of methods that work, but I think the, the big thing for me is what works for me mentally. Um, you know, what's stimulating for me mentally, what's, you know, you can have a super hard workout that's really going to work for you. But, you know, if you do it time after time, it's like, oh, man, you got to you got to have a rest after that, like <laughs> mentally, mm-hmm. just to be able to do that consistently throughout the season. So for me, a lot of what I do is all all the power numbers I set for myself are pretty reachable, pretty repeatable. So, you know, I can be consistent throughout the season. Yeah. So I think that fundamentally here, we're, we're talking about a couple different things. Uh, and I think it's important to differentiate between different philosophies, as you put it, Trevor, and just straight up bad advice. So I love what Frank said earlier about there, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Something I like to say a lot to athletes is there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. But if you try them all, you're going to end up with a very butchered cat. <laughs> um, my apologies to any cat lovers out there. It's kind of a gross image. That's pretty gruesome right there. <laughs> um, and yes, I am staying with Chris's cat. I know early in my cycling career, I really focused on listening. Anybody who was willing to talk to me, who seemed more experienced, who seemed better than me, I I wanted to hear what they had to say. And I would get all the uh, bits of advice that I could. And you would get a lot of conflicting advice. You would hear a lot of different things. And my approach to it was try it. But when you try something, give it some time to see if it works for you. And don't try everything under the sun all at once. Try one or two things, see how they work for you, decide if it works for you, and then move on to the next things. That's at least what I found worked for me. And some things didn't work. Some things did. There were things that worked. It might not even work for me, but worked for a lot of people that, that were, you know, the differences, as you said, were more philosophical versus there are just some things out there that you go, oh, that's bad advice. And we certainly had people come in here where they've given advice and I've gone, I don't, that's not what I would advise, but nothing wrong with it. It's just a different approach. Uh, versus I've heard us and coaches say things to athletes who just go, oh, man, what are you, what are you thinking? 
I mean, Frank, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that. Sep, I'm sure you've seen some of that. How can you differentiate differing philosophies versus, you know, steer clear of that? The science, for starters, your own personal experience, success of using that advice in the past with, with other athletes. I mean, you know, a big thing these days getting on nutrition is like ketosis and then there's Dr. Googly his way and it's working for some and it's not for others. And I, I think the person receiving the advice is ultimately the, they're responsible for their own performance on the bike. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I get this advice. I'm going to hire a coach. I'm going to go to this team. I'm going to do this race. And they're guaranteed some sort of result. And but because they've done what they've asked or been told or the training plan. But at the end of the day, it's the athlete that's uh, holding the bag. It's it, the result is their own, not the advice they're given, if that's making any sense. And so mm -hmm. they have to pick and choose wisely. And I think when you ask for advice, because it is uh, subjects that usually aren't clear, you have to take advice from people that you trust and with trust, you know, that's that's a huge subject. Like I did a Google search on how to how do you know when you can trust someone before I came in here, <laughs> and everything that comes up is like relationship stuff. How do you know if your boyfriend is the real deal? <laughs> stuff like that. But it, the heart of the matter is, is trust, and and if you if you trust someone, you definitely need to vet them, um, ask for testimonials, see what their past is like, their education experience. All that, what, ulterior motives, marketing, if it's genuine, so forth. And at some point, you just need to trust one philosophy. If you if you mix philosophies, then you don't know what worked. Then you, you know? have a multi-skinned cat. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you trust philosophy philosophies and it doesn't work, you don't necessarily know why. Mm -hmm. So go with one or the other from a person you trust. And because you're the athlete is the one that ultimately – is responsible. If that's not working, then learn from that and use that experience to maybe go to the other philosophy and figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. So they talk in cycling about trust the plan. And yes. that's exactly what you're talking about because you're not going to see benefits of a new approach to training in a week or two. You, you have to give it the time. And so the, those months where you are seeing no improvement, sometimes even it can be a year or two, when I went to the center in Victoria, Canada, Hushang, the head coach, said, so you're here for two years, right? And I went, I don't know. And he's like, well, the first year is going to be a waste. You're not going to see anything until the second year. And I was all upset about that and said, I'll prove him wrong. And no, I didn't prove him wrong. <laughs> Had a great second year. First year wasn't so good. Yeah, so trust, there, trust the process. You have to trust the process. And you, and you have to be willing to trust it when you're not initially seeing the results. Which means you have to trust where the process is coming from, which I think is exactly what you were talking about earlier. It's trusting the person that it's coming from and therefore trusting the process. Does there have to be a willingness to experiment a bit too? Or is that best left to others? You know, as an athlete, I think experimentation can be a little bit scary. And we were just talking about how you do have to sort of trust the plan that's put in front of you, which might mean not so much experimentation. But because there are all, all these different philosophies out there, I mean, is it a good recommendation to your average athlete to, to just try things and give it some time? And if it doesn't work, try again? Yes. You look like you're hedging over there, Frank. <laughs> yes and no, maybe depends. Mm -hmm. I, I mean – like take Sup, for example, you know, top 10 at Baldy, crushed Moonstone. So you take what worked there, you know what to do, but 
if I know you, you want to do better. So you're going to experiment and tweak and, and say, how can I make this better? And that's the experiment. Hmm. And that's his self-advice, presumably. Hmm. I mean, a good coach-athlete relationship is experimentation and reviewing and monitoring the training and saying, oh, you know, we got a top 10 here. Next year we want a podium. How do we do that? We take everything that worked, discard what didn't work, don't make the same mistakes twice, and, and here's, the, here's the plan. And we trust that, that process. And a good coach-athlete relationship is, is two ways. The athlete's like, what about this? The coach says, yeah, let's try that. And it's a collaborative relationship, which is experimentation. Less, less heading down a whole new path and more just tweaking the direction that you're going. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to start ketosis three weeks before your A race. <laughs> you know, and then also experimentation also relates to how long your game is. You know, you're 22. You're going to, you got like 10, 12 more years ahead of you if you want. You know, you're going to make mistakes along the way. So you, when you're experimenting, you could be experimenting for like a year or two, like you're the center, two years. You didn't know if it was going to work out, but you trusted the process and you went for it. And that's sometimes sort of the, the decisions you need to make in cycling. So I I've actually thought about turning this into an article, but I kind of divided a cyclist's career or any athlete's career into four stages. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but I'll quickly get through the first two because really what we're talking about here is what I consider the third stage. So the first stage is when you get introduced to the sport. It is the most fun stage because you can train like an idiot. You can do everything wrong. You get stronger. You get addicted to the sport. It's fun. Uh, you're, you're tearing apart the, the local training rides. You're hanging on but loving it. It's a great stage. Yep. You get it once in your life. <laughs> yes. Unless you switch sports. Unless you switch sports. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who keep trying to repeat that, that phase. Enough. And I can't tell you how many of athletes have told me about their first year and they're like, why can't it be like that anymore? And I'm not sure I have an answer, except it just isn't. It never is for anybody. The second phase is this, it's more a mental one. It's where you are exposed to a level of competition or whatever the challenge is for you that's above your level and you basically get beat up. And then you decide, do I want to do this or not? And actually a lot of people say, nope, see you later, I'm, I'm not interested. If you say, yes, I want to rise to the challenge, then you hit this third phase, which I consider the, the longest, and it's one that never really ends in the most important phase. And that's where I call it learning to race and train more perfectly, knowing that that's bad grammar because that's the point. It's never perfect. But you start with a foundation. You, you have, by this point, figured out some things that work for you. You start with that foundation and you start perfecting it. You start figuring out what can I do a little bit better over here? What can I do a little bit better over there? And you keep perfecting it. And successfully getting through this stage is reaching the point where you understand yourself and your training so well, you know exactly how to execute your training. The way I see people fail this stage is every year, these guys would come out every year and go, I've got this whole new training technique. This year I'm doing this. And you go, you're going right back to the beginning. You've thrown, out, you've thrown out things that don't work for you, but you've also thrown out all the things that do work for you. And you're starting over. And if you keep doing that, you're never going to be able to perfect and find the routine that works for you. It sounds like you did this very early on where, where you had that foundation. And, have, have, and I'm really impressed that by 22, you've reached the, the level you, you've reached. 
but have really figured yourself out over the years? And how, how did you go about doing that? I, I think honestly, I'm still, uh, I still feel like I'm in that, that first stage. Um, I'm still pretty young. So, you know, I think physiologically every year I'm just going to improve until I reach whatever plateau and coming from a not entirely different sport, but a mountain bike background, you know, and this is my second year on the road bike. So training wise and racing wise, everything feels like I'm getting exponentially better. So yeah, I think, I think it depends on when you, when you come into a sport or when you come into a different training system or scenario, I don't think it's the same for everybody. For, for me, a young guy, I have a lot more to experiment with and, you know, even get away with and, um, you know, not, not getting stuck in a rut. I think there are a lot of examples of young people getting stuck in a rut of training, maybe from doing too much too soon. You, you kind of have the advantage of, of having come from other aerobic sports and been able yeah. to sort of figure out the ways you get yourself fit. And then you get to actually go back to Trevor's sort of stage one when, with your switch to road racing and, and sort of make it new and exciting again. So that's actually kind of a, a cool place to be, I think. When you've already figured out the, 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 the self-coaching side and figured out how to do it, and then you get to go and essentially use all those concepts you figured out in a basically a new sport, right? Mm-hmm. That's got to be pretty fun. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I think when I was younger, I would play hockey and Nordic skis. So during the winter, I would go from Nordic practice straight to hockey practice. So right there you have like one of the hardest, you know, endurance sports in Nordic skiing. And then you go straight to hockey practice where you're just like anaerobic for 30 <laughs> seconds and then you hop back on the bench and, you know, go through a shift and then get back out there. So yeah, I think being able to draw on those two things is So that's exciting. your secret. Yeah, that's the <laughs> yeah. secret. Yeah. <laughs> just go all day. You just need one of those, uh, you know, curved nozzle water bottles that you can squirt through the hockey helmet. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. Just spit on the ice and ready to go again. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. When you started talking about um, phase one and it being super exciting for people that are new to the sport, I always feel like it's um, that's also the time when people can start to look at people they aspire to be or, or heroes in the sport for lack of a better term. And they start latching on to things that maybe aren't right for them to advance for them. Don't apply to them. You know, like take, for example, uh, marginal gains, team sky, the, all these catch phrases that are associated with that team and their practices. And people start looking at them thinking, man, they're so good. I should do what they do. And just sort of blindly following their lead doing the things that they do and uh, in the process destroying themselves <laughs> forgetting forgetting that the reason why sky does marginal gains is cuz they've already got all the maximal ones right and most yeah. of us are not that way <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of what i was talking about yeah. that you start with that foundation that's mm-hmm. the bulk of your training and then all the and then it's chipping away at the or fine tuning or sanding or whatever you want to consider the, mm-hmm. the edges yeah it's just you know my point <laughs> is kind of if you're going to start if you're, you're you're young or you're early in a cycling career and you're starting to train, you just I think something that's very crucial is listening to your body, listening to your your own common sense, and don't overdo it by just falling into the trap of um, the copycat trap. Yeah, the yeah. copycat trap or the marketing pitch or the something that leads you astray. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with Sep over here and that you have not done that. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I mean, that's you know? an advertising major. Right? <laughs> <laughs> marketing, marketing. Well, you buzzwords. know, you know what advertising is really about. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it can be hard though. I mean, I, I remember being a young bike racer and, and getting 
pulled to and fro by by the things that you would read and the things that you would see pros doing and the things that you felt like you should be doing. Uh, and I will, you know, to be perfectly honest, the thing that stopped me doing that was actually starting to get coached by Trevor. So <laughs> that that worked out for well, pretty well for both of us in the end. It, it is it's exceptionally difficult not to to not be taken in by those things. I think. I'm also just looking at it as most of us in the, at this table are in our 40s and at the end of this podcast. Hey, 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 hey. At the end of this 20s, podcast, 20s. Like, Sep, can you, can you give us some advice? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, this might not fit in well, but I'm curious if you ever wonder, Sep, man, if I get, I'm doing this all on my own and I'm fairly confident in my skills, but yeah. what if I got the right coach and it clicked and it... And yeah. I, it's just been a matter of finding the right one and I haven't quite I, I think for me it's a matter of of yeah trust is huge and it's you know if, if a coach has a general philosophy and if you don't buy into certain parts of that then it's hard to trust in the process as you might say mm -hmm. so absolutely you got to connect with that person and <clears throat> have belief share the similar beliefs and, and mm -hmm. philosophies and it comes down to your gut and your instinct is like can I trust this person and you said there was four phases of, of your cycling. There's it, that's, it's kind of goes that way with training too. You know, you start off riding and just smashing yourself and you get right. faster and then you may upgrade a category and get your teeth kicked in and are like, Oh, I need to do something about this. Maybe I'll double down on my training and you might try that. That's like one of your phases. And then you realize, Oh, that's not working. I'll get a coach. And then that works a lot. And then you may plateau out because they're not innovative or you're just not evolving with that person. And then I think one of the fourth phases of, of a coach athlete is the athlete goes off on their own and self-coaches, which I think is a very important discovery phase because you are responsible on your own and no one else is for your performance. And that's kind of like where you're at. And you'll perhaps maybe get to a point in your career, like Chris is pointing out where you do meet the right person right. and click with them. And you're yeah. like, I'm in. And that'll be, you're on mm -hmm. to your, your fourth phase. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's just, you know, continually, continually kind of busting through plateaus, right? Just yeah. finding a plateau, figuring out how to get past it over and over and over again. That seems to be the stages of coaching, that was <laughs> the stages of an athlete, really a better description of my, my phases <laughs> than, than what I gave. And the fourth phase, because I didn't say it before, is the champion phase when you have just <laughs> gotten everything to the point that you have it dialed in and, and you're getting the results that you want to get. And some people never get there. Some people never get there. And some people get there and then they go all the way back to stage two, uh, take on a higher level, get their teeth kicked in and go through the whole thing all over again. Some people get there and don't realize it because yeah. as it compares to them, personal improvement, they're at the height of their personal improvement. They're the best they've ever been. But because you compare each other to the competition, and the competition is just better. And so they may not be winning or podiuming, but they're riding better than ever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important for amateurs to, to realize when that's happening. It's like, I've never ridden better. And, uh, and be satisfied with that. Yeah, never compare yourself to, to other people. Right. <laughs> Good recipe. So I will tell you, going back to this trust, and I would love to hear from you guys on, on what you would look for to trust somebody. Um, but a really big one for me, and this was, I got this from an athlete, and this was a big moment for me, uh, where one of my athletes told me he trusted me. I went, well, why is that? Why, why do you necessarily, is that, a, they like kind of going, is that a good thing? 
And he's, he, I think it was that I used to say, do not sprint in the off-season. And then I did a, a lot of research on the, the neuromuscular side and doing short sprints in the off-season can actually be beneficial. So I did an about-face on that. And that's what he pointed out. He said, you aren't worried about admitting when you were wrong and changing something. And Frank, I remember the, the first time I, I interviewed you. I mean, you, you have years, decades of experience and we talked about that sweet spot polarized debate. You still had that open mind of, well, I hadn't thought about that or thought about this. And that, to me, I instantly went, this guy's a really good coach. And I would say, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would say, actually be hesitant to trust anybody that is absolutely certain and yeah. just unwilling to, to look at other sides. I, I would say if you're looking for a coach or a scientist or a nutritionist or anybody to trust, Somebody has an open mind, to me, that means that, that, that they are looking at the different sides and constantly evolving. I agree with all that. And as a coach, when you work with an athlete, one of the first and foremost things that you're trying to establish is trust. And sometimes it takes time. And sometimes the advice that you want to give, the athlete may not be ready to hear it yet because you're not exactly sure if they trust you yet. Because if you give them that advice before they trust you, they may be put off and run away because it's hard to hear. However, once that relationship evolves and you've gained that trust, then they're ready to hear some hard truths, maybe, for example. Or you might just be able to deliver a level of advice that takes it to the next level. But as a coach, I'm always trying to establish trust. And you, you can read all sorts of things how you do that. But it, it, a lot of it's just do what you say. Uh, you know, look after their best interests. Always, whenever some athlete uploads a, a power file where I know where they just smash themselves, I'm not going to let that sit out there for 36 hours. Like if they do a field test tomorrow morning, I'm going to go look at it tomorrow afternoon because they poured their heart and soul out of it. And I think that helps establish trust. Things like that. Agreed. Trust. I think it basically all comes back to that, right? That basically, that is the answer to our original question, which is how do you deal with contradictory advice? Go with the side that you trust, do some self-experimentation, and, uh, and see where you end up. Trevor, are you a Strava guy? Absolutely, Kai. Well, you got me into it. You <laughs> should swear and curse at you for all you've done to me. <laughs> I did. I, I knew that you would be into Strava. Well, you can actually use Strava and your addiction to Strava to your benefit now because if you head over to healthiq.com slash velonews, uh, Health IQ, which is a company that provides life insurance for fit folks like us, you know, cyclists, runners, uh, swimmers, vegans, uh, whatever, whatever makes you fit, uh, you can now use your Strava, upload your Strava to Health IQ and use that to get a discount on life insurance. All you got to do is head to healthiq.com slash velonews. Do they provide for Canadians or will they just laugh at me? <laughs> no Canadians allowed, sorry. Uh, the other thing that we wanted to talk about here is, is, is the science. And you mentioned that early on in your answer there. I mean, there is, there is the fact that a lot of the science is not yet resolved so how does how does the average some of the science is bad <laughs> some of the science is yeah or bad or, or gets proven wrong later i mean that is that's what science is right it's it's a uh, the scientific process um how does the average bike racer or even someone like sep who, who's training himself at, at a pro level how do you how do they wade through that 
to, to figure out what exactly they should be paying attention to. That's a really big question. I apologize. <laughs> Wade through the science. You're like, like, wow. Like, how do you, so, 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 you know, you, like you said, you're, you're self-coached, but you are, you're training with power meter and stuff like that. Yeah. You're not reading scientific papers like these yes. guys probably no, are. I'd, I'd Maybe. like to read some. Yeah. 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 So do you have like a physiology background? No, no, yeah. not at all. But, but I wanted to, but I didn't want to deal with the, <laughs> the <part of> stuff. <laughs> but you yeah. pay attention. That, that's oh, the yeah, point. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I think it's really fun to read. Yeah. So, so it's like, how do you figure out, I mean, what's the process like there where you're figuring out what, what looks like, I mean, what, what you think will work for you and what you think won't work for you and what you think is bogus and what isn't. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to the individual, like, like Frank mentioned the, the diet stuff. I think that's a really good example of things that you can take too far based on evidence that you may read or what people may tell you. You know, I have teammates that are like, full on full aboard the the keto train or whatever and I, I don't think i've ever seen him eat a carbohydrate and that's that's that freaks me out <laughs> uh, I, I like my comfort foods you know my, my pasta my rice and all that so but they they do that and they're successful you know they'll maybe have an off day that you know you could attribute to lack of glycogen uh, but i'm i'm fully aboard the eat as much as you can carbohydrate and so maybe i even take that too far as an individual but yeah, I think it's wading through the the evidence that you may see and the anecdotal things that you might hear from your teammates or coaches or whatever, and then using it in moderation or um, mm-hmm. you know just being smart about what you're doing. I think that's one of the places people can get off track is you feel that something was published in the research and therefore it must be right. You, you can't even always trust that. Um, so I also work in the nutrition world and that's a great example of where you have to be careful of the science because more than any other field I've seen, people come into the nutrition world with a belief. It's either I'm a vegetarian, I'm going to prove that vegetarianism is right, or I hunt every weekend, so I'm going to prove that all we need to eat is protein. People come in with their bias and try to prove it. And it's actually amazing how easy it is, especially with certain types of studies to prove what you want to prove. And there's a great example right now of a couple of studies that just came out showing that uh, low-salt diets are bad for you and we should all be eating twice or more than the, the recommended daily, uh, sorry, the daily recommendations. That research was faulty. And there was a later study published showing the fault in that study. The study showing eat a high-salt diet got all sorts of press. The one that said there's a fault in that and no, actually, low-salt diets are better for you, no press. There was a bias there. Yeah, and there's also a, a storyline to sell more magazines or in more internet hits. You're not going to get it with a... More a, Pringles. Li- yeah, a less <laughs> flashy headline. And likewise, in, 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 science, in cycling research, you're limited by the fact that most studies can only last a month or two. They all have to be done in a lab on a trainer. So the let's test uh, doing six-hour rides like Rob Britton does, really hard to do in a lab. (laughs) So already there's a bit of a built-in bias in the cycling research just because of what's what they're capable of doing. I mean, Trevor, I know that when, you know, when we, we often go through some of the science before we'll do a podcast and a couple different times we've, we've come across things that when you dug into how exactly the, the, testing was done the science was done it was 
you know, it it bore, bore no resemblance to anything that would happen in the real world or some small 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 way that the that the test was done dramatically affected the outcome. A lot of people don't read the methodology. And for example, there was that study that just came out saying that EPO does not improve performance at all. And a lot of media jumped on that. That's so, exactly the one I was going to talk to you about. Uh, so. <laughs> this so. is right before the Tour de France. This came out. And we actually, Trevor, we had you sort of dig into this one a little bit. And, and once we really dug into it, it yeah, the, the, the methodology was faulty. And that... You know, that was an example of something, a, a test coming out or a study coming out and the entire cycling world going, OK, then why? Why the 90s? Like <laughs> we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that proves this or that, that suggests that this is wrong. What, what, what exactly was wrong with right. the methodology in that one? And my biggest issue with this was that the, the head researcher actually did an interview where he said it's too bad they stripped the titles from Lance Armstrong because the EPO didn't help him. At all. <laughs> uh, and you kind of go, wait, what? Yeah, there were, he was overstepping his bounds in terms of a conclusion there. Yes, he really was. There were, um, so, I mean, there were actually parts of the study that were very good. The stuff they did in the lab was very good and very thorough. And the lab results showed, yes, EPO helps performance. But what they latched on to was they had the subjects do a race. It was... It's up Mont Ventoux, right? Finished with Mount Ventoux, yeah. but first they did 100 kilometers of riding with was it like 6,000 feet of climbing, then climbed Mount Montu. Uh, so basically they were taking the hardest stage of, of the Tour de France and having them race it. Problem is they couldn't get any racers to participate in the study because if anybody takes EPO, they can't race anymore. So they got amateur cyclists. These were cyclists, and they said this in the, in, in the study, trained on average five hours a week. So they had them take EPO for a few weeks, continue training five hours a week, and then said, now let's have you do a race that's going to take you about six to seven hours, more than you train in a week. That's pretty much the hardest stage of the Tour de France and see how you perform. This wasn't a test of performance. This was a test of grit. Who could, who could get to the end? Yeah, and basically it was testing the wrong limiter, right? right. Because EPO uh, uh, EPO is not necessarily going to help you if you are just thoroughly untrained for the task at hand. That's, That's right. the issue. It's like taking people who do one-mile runs, putting them on EPO, and then saying, okay, let's race a marathon. <laughs> it's, it's not going to tell very much. So fundamentally bad methodology. And unfortunately, <laughs> this is – it's not common – I don't think. I mean, Trevor, you spend a lot more time with your with your nose in uh, in in literature than I do, in science literature than I do. But it it, it is we do run into it occasionally, right? Yeah, I would not take advice from that researcher. <laughs> it's, it's strange because these are in peer reviewed journals, and and you're putting trust in that journal in a sense to have reviewed it. Well, um, which journal was that? Because there's. Well, sure, more reputable good. journals than others. This is true. Yeah, that's true. I forget what I thought it was in. Was it in the Lancet? Well, you guys keep talking, and all Lancet's super prestigious and yeah. like med science super prestigious, but you know Chinese Journal of Sports Medicine. Sure. <laughs> no, yeah. hey. nothing wrong. I'm just saying. <laughs> Subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you know, was the work you know done by a graduate student? That the the head of the lab just put his name on, and then he he's defending it. Right. I, yeah. Yeah. You have to you know interpret and look where your information is coming from. You know, you want to get it from Fox News or you want to get it from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. 
and yeah fake news or fake news (laughs) 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 that study was pretty incredible actually i don't know if you i don't know if you saw it but I'm still looking forward. For some reason, I I read the headline. It it popped up with like the day I got to France before the tour, because of course that's when they're going to put it out, right? Of course. We were just like, I was just like, there's no f***ing way this is possible. (laughs) Just forwarded to Trevor. Trevor, tear Uh, this apart. (laughs) What journal was it in? I mean, let's let's find it here. And how did it just look on our website? Just Google our website. Yeah. I'm going through my article right now because I had to put in there somewhere where the study was published. You have your article here? I'm looking at it right now. But it's Probably like you said earlier, it. Trevor, like there's good science and bad science. And Lancet. Yeah. Lancet. Lancet hematology. So there was actually a noble reason behind what they did, what they did, which was there's a lot of criticism that the testing they do in lab doesn't translate to the real world. So, for example, uh, Dr. Hawley talked about that study where they just had people ride to fatigue to to test the effects of a ketogenic diet. And his point is, when have you ever done a race where they just say, everybody go until you fall over? (laughs) Not not a real world scenario. So what they wanted to do with the study is simulate a real world situation, see if it would help you in a stage of the Tour de France. Noble cause, just poor execution. You can't take people who train five hours a week and say... Let's put you in the toughest stage of the Tour de France and see if it helps Tour de France caliber riders. I mean, even if they ju- if they just sent them up Montfont too, that would have been better, tough, right? Yeah. I mean, like that's still an hour and a half or something like that for your average amateur. If you're you know putting out four four and a half watts per kilo or whatever, yeah. uh, then you might have seen differences theoretically. The other thing that Lancet should have caught was they said they specifically said in the study. Uh, that the EPO did not improve performance on Mont Ventoux. They only raced Ventoux at the end of the study. They didn't race before. You can't say there was no change in performance when you don't have a before and after. Right, because they were just comparing the group that took EPO to the group that didn't, right? Right, and when you look at the stats, there was a lot of evidence that the group that didn't take EPO was actually a little fitter Hmm. at the start. So, So in general... If, if a layperson is is checking out a, a a journal article or reading some research, are there any are there any rules of thumb that you can give to people to say, okay, this is good science, this is bad science, or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? I think you can think, okay, this looks interesting. It might be true or helpful, and then run it by another person, a, a trusted. Someone you trust. Email it to us. We'll talk about it on Fast Talk. (laughs) (laughs) See what they say. They may be like, this is awesome. They, in the case of the EPO study, be like, that's bollocks. And (laughs) that's who you should trust. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that's coming to mind while we talk about flawed studies is, do you remember the researcher from um, Texas A&M that rationalized how Lance Armstrong improved physiologically post-cancer? Oh, right. He he published a a very... This is yeah. cool. So I just wrote and, an article and, about yeah. this. <laughs> and it was in a peer-reviewed journal and it checked out. It was legit. And you're like, oh my God, you know, this is how you do it. And years later, you're like, man, that was a bunch of BS. <laughs> <laughs> so it showed, Co- Coil studies showed that all of Armstrong's improvements from when he, from I think it was a year before he won the world championships to uh, his fourth Tour de France win, it was somewhere in that range that his VO2 max didn't improve, his lactate threshold really didn't improve. All that improved 
was his efficiency got 8% better and he had a 7% drop in body weight. Yeah. And, and they've done similar studies on Froome too. You know, all the, his data was exactly the same as body weight, just decreased by like eight or nine kilos. So, but in hindsight with arms in Armstrong's case, you know, you know what he was on and what he did. Does EPO improve efficiency? So I actually put this into the, the article, and this guy over here chopped it off. <laughs> Let's not get into anything. <laughs> I had my reasons. <laughs> you, had, you agree that it's a better article now, correct? I did agree. It's a better, it was a crappy article to start. Chris saved it. Um, so here's really interesting, and, and this is not conclusive. This is just very interesting. So when they did studies on high-altitude effects, they, they have looked a lot at uh, your, your Himalayan altitude natives and your Tibetan altitude natives. And what's really interesting is their adaptations are different. Uh, your Tibetans actually develop this huge VO2 max, this unbelievable ability to deliver oxygen. It's unfortunate for them because it's a huge strain on them and their rates of heart disease before the age of 50 is really high. Um, your Himalayan um, high altitude natives actually don't have a better VO2 max than people that live at sea level. They develop this unbelievable efficiency. So it's not that they get this better ability to take in oxygen. They're just very efficient at using the oxygen that they get. In studies where they looked at the effects of EPO, or sorry, in studies where they looked at the improvements of, of top pros over time, they showed that, yes, some have improved efficiency. But what you saw is the ones who became very efficient had lower VO2 maxes. The ones that had higher VO2 maxes were less efficient. Um, so what you're seeing is there's this, this possible two pathways of improvements when it comes to using oxygen. One is to become more efficient. One is just to improve your oxygen delivery. So again, this is just me throwing out, kind of talking out loud, giving my thoughts. But when you then talk about doping and with EPO, EPO really just improves that, that oxygen delivery. It, it raises, when you take it, it just raises your hematocrit. So when you have athletes who have uh, go more down that path of becoming highly efficient, they are the sort of people who are, could be really responsive to EPO, to doping. Right. The people who go down the path of naturally developing a very high e, uh, VO2 max but have lower efficiency, they're not going to respond very well to doping. So it's very interesting. You had this study showing Armstrong had this dramatic rise in his efficiency. Mm. Well, I think we should leave the third rail behind. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Armstrong. Uh, <laughs> but that is fascinating. It is totally fascinating. And, and you know, Frank, another perfect example of how the science can be, well, further down the line, we can have a little bit more context. It's like, uh, like and, I was saying to you in my email, yeah. like, Sometimes the coaches are ahead of the science. And I think. I think a lot of scientists will recognize that. And I think a really unique perspective is a scientist that is a coach like yourself because you're taking your practical experience and then you're taking your science background and you're merging them together into the, you know, the best of both worlds. Super Trevor. And to enter the triumvirate, on top of that, I am the dumbest cyclist alive. <laughs> I can confirm this, yes. I can also confirm so this. I, I can, strategy excluded. No matter how dumb a thing you've done on the bike, I have done it. Trevor's been dumber. <laughs> 
So fortunately, I'm going to have to chime in here with the dreaded correction. This is what I get for trying to cover a complex subject off of memory. First of all, I, I got my high-altitude natives mixed up a little bit. It's actually uh, the Tibetans and the Himalayans who seem to adapt more on the efficiency side. Uh, and it's the, the Andean natives who tend to uh, adapt more on that VO2 max or, or hematological side. And that's where I, I oversimplified it and got some of the science wrong. So what I'm going to do, I'll put references to a couple of really good studies about this up on, Vel on the Velo News website if you're really interested. But when I was talking about the, the issues with adapting in terms of, of VO2 max, uh, it's not the high VO2 max that, that led to higher levels of heart disease. It's more that the adaptations in the, in the Andeans was more hematological, meaning it was in their blood. So they developed very high hematocrits, and, and that has been a health issue that's been associated with athletes who use EPO. So let me just read a couple lines out of this study that probably say it better than, than I will. It has been suggested that Tibetan Highlanders are better equipped to cope with hypoxic conditions compared with the Andean natives because individuals with high hematocrit values, 50 to 55 percent, are at increased risk of problems associated with high blood viscosity. The superior performance capacity at altitude of the Tibetan Sherpas is not attributable to an exceptional VO2 max, but rather better exercise economy, better lung function, higher maximal cardiac output, and better levels of blood oxygen saturation. And again, I don't want to go too deep into this because then I have to start talking about things like uh, hypoxic inducible factor one. I have to start talking about the changes in the complex four of the electron transport chain to prevent proton leakage. And it, like I said, you can check out these studies uh, that, that we referenced. They're absolutely fascinating. The key message here, going back to try to simplify all this, is that you see this interesting divergence in the adaptation of high-altitude natives where some, it's mostly hematological, their, their blood's ability to carry oxygen is improved. Um, and for others, it's actually much more an efficiency side. And, and this one study that I just quoted said that actually Tibetans and, and Andeans don't have really higher hematocrit or EPO levels that, than uh, people at sea level. So there is slightly different mechanisms causing this, but it is very interesting that there have been some studies that looked at top-level endurance athletes in the long term and showed a, a similar divergence where you have some that seem to improve their VO2 max, and you have others that don't really improve their VO2 max, but become more efficient, similar to what you see with the high-altitude natives, and certainly a lot of the mechanisms are the same. And so interestingly, the study that I just quoted, these researchers also looked at the effects of taking EPO, and so they stayed in the study, unlike the response to hypoxia, we have been able to measure a mean 12% increase in hemoglobin mass and associated 7% increase in VO2 max when using recombinant human erythropoietin. Well, so we um, have really basically said you can't trust anything. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And say, general takeaway, don't trust anything. Just be like Sep, cut yourself. Either <laughs> <laughs> good or you're bad. <laughs> Let me just throw in one quick thing before we leave this on this. Yeah. 
if you're trying to figure out what science to trust, they have criteria for what's considered uh, good research and bad research. And one of them is repeatability. So if you have a study that comes out and says something dramatic, always be skeptical until other researchers have come out, repeated the studies, and been able to reproduce the results. That's when you can start trusting the science. So if a bunch more studies come out with better study design showing that EPO has no benefits, then I might start believing it. But based on the one study, no. So if you're wondering what to believe about the, the research, never trust just a single study. Fortunately, there is a type of study called a meta-analysis that I love when these come out for cycling or endurance sports. Basically, this is a study where they, they pick a topic or an area and look back at all the existing research on the subject. And so first, they, they eliminate studies that aren't of sufficient quality and then do an analysis of what do all these studies combined say. And there, there's a whole area of statistical science uh, that allows you to combine the results of, of multiple different studies. I have several times on this podcast referenced some of these meta-analysis, and they're quite powerful. The last thing I will say about trusting the science is be really careful about what you read in articles. This is where we as journalists some have to be careful and sometimes don't fully do our job. Uh, often we look for that really cool headline or something really exciting in the research and, and make claims from science that really can't be claimed. You certainly saw that with this study that we just talked about, uh, looking at EPO. Even the, the researcher himself said, well, it's too bad they stripped Lance Armstrong because it didn't have any effect on them. There was some good stuff in his study. He couldn't draw that conclusion, but a lot of journalists jumped on that. Uh, I probably wrote the most boring of all the articles on the study because I focused on the methodology. Uh, but I do think all journalists should take the time to read the methodology, which unfortunately they don't always do. So if you are going to trust a scientific study to adjust what you are doing with your training, take the time to look at the actual study. Take the time to look at the methodology and make sure it's really saying what the article you just read says that scientific study said. Uh, you will be surprised how often it has either been exaggerated or conclusions are being drawn from that study that just can't be drawn. So unfortunately, do your research because you don't always know if, if the reporter or, or journalist is doing it for you. Yeah, let's go around the table. What's your advice for finding what's right for you or dealing with contradictory advice? Coming at, Since I'm a coach, if you're hiring a coach, if you're trying to figure out who to trust, Look at their credentials, their education, how many people they've helped get fast in the past, and then the testimonials of those athletes and what they say about the coach. And you can look at that and, and then use your gut and your instinct to decide whether you should trust that coach. What about you, Seb? I think don't be afraid to experiment with different things. Um, yeah, everything in moderation. You know, I think there's a lot of things that aren't, aren't going to hurt you in the short term. But yeah, just to have something that you can trust and are most importantly mentally excited about. I think there are certain things that maybe other people say that you should buy into, but if you're not personally mentally 
psyched up about it and you, that's not what's going to get you out the door, then maybe that's not the right route for you. So do what's, you know, really invigorating for you personally. I would definitely agree with that, that point. Um, I've never had a coach. I think I, I, you just have to put a lot of trust in listening to your, your body, your own sensations. And, um, you can't be a good athlete whether you have a coach or not, I think, unless you listen to what your body's telling you. So that would be sort of my philosophy. And then exactly what Sepp said, if, uh, if you're not excited about it, you're probably not going to do the training that you even you think you should do 100%. If you are excited, you're going to do exactly what you need to do and, and get the most out of all of your workouts, all of your training. Trevor? So my bit of advice, which was given to me by an uh, Olympic gold medalist, I believe. She definitely was an Olympic medalist in two different sports, cycling and uh, uh, speed skating. And she had what she called a success list, which was this little book that she took everywhere with her. So my bit of advice is buy a blank book, a small book, so you can transport it with you. And what you should do is learn yourself. So as you go to races, as you do training in that book, Write down what does and doesn't work for you. And then I use a, a three-ring binder, a little three-ring binder, because I'm constantly taking pages out, putting new pages in. But as you learn things about yourself, write it down and have that book evolve over the years until you eventually end up with a book that this is this is me. So that's that third phase of, of perfecting your own training and racing. Get it all written down, because you will forget all this stuff. And to have a book that you can go back and review. And Chrissy talked to us about how she would sit there going to races just reading her book. And how people would actually try to steal this book from her. And the last, That's pretty whack. The last thing she recommended <laughs> is at the end of each year, have one page in that book that's the summary of the year. Write four or five things that you learned that year that you do not want to forget. Then make a list of seven, eight, nine things that really worked for you. And you know, six, seven, eight, nine things that didn't work for you. It is. I have that book. If my apartment was on fire and I could say three things, it would be one. <laughs> I like that what advice. Would be the other two. Not your cat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry. Uh, about, you talk about you cats at the beginning of the show. You talk about not saving just burning hates the cats, cats at the end of the show. Trevor just hates yeah, the I cats. actually like cats, but I think every cat liker who listens to this show is going to send me... Yeah, I don't know why. Hey, I think like send this dude you, you can send Trevor uh, cat photos <laughs> at, uh, Trevor, at Connor Trevor Connor in Toronto, Canada. They'll find, the postman in Canada will find him. <laughs> Good old guy. Uh, my advice is to always listen to Fast Talk and always listen to Trevor. Uh, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Uh, you can email your cat photos specifically to webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. We really like ratings and comments. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers the news about the week in cycling, features myself, Spencer Pallison, and Fred Dreyer. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is a co-production of Connor Coaching and Velo News. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Frank Overton, Sepp Koos, Chris Case, Trevor Connor, I'm Kaylee Fretz. Thank you for listening. 